It seems like every case in the news recently has a political component to it. And the case that we're going to be discussing today with Lisa Wayne is no exception. She represented Jason Williams, the DA in New Orleans. And we're going to be talking about representing a client in a politically charged case, whether to call that client or not, how race plays into it, jury selection, the importance of opening statement, the importance of stressing beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a really uh, cool discussion with a really cool person, Lisa Wayne, who runs NACDL. What I need you all to do to get the word out is to like, subscribe, review these episodes. It's really important. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. In For the Defense, we have Lisa Wayne next. My name is David Oscar Marcus. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Well, I'm delighted this morning to have the wonderful Lisa Wayne on the show. Lisa um, is not only one of the great criminal defense lawyers, but probably the coolest criminal defense lawyer uh, that I know. And she uh, is now running the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Um, But before that, she had one last trial in her, the Jason Williams trial, which we'll be talking about. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you, David. And when you say I'm one of the coolest, I'm really, we're going to have to do something about that. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely have to expand the scope of your cool life. (laughs) Well, that's, that's a a, a good point. Um, uh, That's why I'm hanging out with you. So, so tell, tell our listeners who Jason Williams is and, and a little about the case. So Jason is the elected district attorney in New Orleans and was um, ran for election during the course of being indicted in federal court. Um, He was a defense lawyer and had been in New Orleans for quite some time and also was a city council um, person and had been an elected city council person for quite some time in New Orleans, a pretty popular um, individual in New Orleans. You know, one of the um, things we're seeing around the country are, are these um, so-called progressive folks getting elected uh, as, as DAs, prosecutors. It, was he one of those um, progressive prosecutors? Absolutely. He ran on a progressive platform in a city that is plagued by, um, you know, allegations of lots of crime. Um, but with, despite that, he was elected um, pretty easily um, for his first term. Because I know you wouldn't represent any old prosecutor. It'd have to be a special prosecutor for you to represent him, right? You know, I actually would represent anyone who is accused. Um, I, I really believe in that. But with that said, Jason and I had been friends. Um, I did not in any way donate to his um, his election because I actually I have some real feelings about this progressive prosecution um, kind of platform anyway. But I believed in Jason and I knew him as a friend and as a person and as a defense lawyer. He and I had had cases together in New Orleans um, prior to him running for D.A. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you're you're I think your roots are in Denver. You're in D.C. now, obviously. And this was a case in New Orleans. I, I'm always interested in how um, people get cases, especially out of town cases, but is it because you guys were close buddies? No, you know, I had actually done a couple of other cases in New Orleans with Jones and Walker, Mike Magner and Avery Pardee down there and Billy Gibbons. And so, you know, my practice became and a lot of that has to do with teaching, David, and lecturing around the country and lawyers bring you into cases based upon what they see and hear about you. So I had kind of picked up this national practice anyway. And Jason, um, after I did um, a fairly well-known football player case 
down in New Orleans. Um, Jason asked me to come in on a couple of cases down there. Do you like doing cases out of town? I do, depending on the town. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and, and, and I've done trials all over the place, too. I, I was just in Tallahassee for for a month. Um, I had never set foot in Tallahassee before, but there's something about trying a case out of town. You know, you you can focus everything. You don't have to worry about the phone ringing in the office. You don't have to worry about um, the family, you know, and all those other things. You can just really focus on the trial, which I kind of like. I agree with you on that. I think it has so many, there's so many different variables. And frankly, I had incredible local counsel whenever I've taken on these cases. That makes all the difference in the world to me because, you know, you're treated differently when you're an out-of-towner. And I think it's always smart to have a good lawyer um, as a colleague and a partner on these cases. And I've been extremely lucky because wherever I've been brought in, it's been top-notch um, colleagues. So that that helps. That helps. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. Now this is this is pretty wild. I mean, the DA is charged. You're, you're representing him. What is he charged with? And is, what court are you guys in? Are you in federal court or state court? So we're in federal court. And so what happened is um, the DA that was in place at the time that Jason was charged is a well-known guy by the name of Leon Canizaro, who um, had a notorious reputation in um, New Orleans. And frankly, like most of the DAs in New Orleans, it has been a very corrupt, um, very harsh and ugly place um, to get charged with any crime. So um, Canizaro was in office at the time. Trump was the president um, during the election, and um, Jason was literally indicted on the eve of saying that he was going to run for election. Um, So it happened right then. He knew it. We knew that it was coming down the pipe, but he um, was charged, I think, the next day after he had um, said that he was running um, for election. It was in federal court in the Fifth Circuit, um, and he was charged with tax frauds um, counts and and 8,300 counts, which were, are not adhering to the law in terms of how you get money and how you record your money um, with the bank um, and with the feds. So, so Lisa, I mean, he gets charged on the eve of announcing his campaign. And this is a good segue into one of the big pretrial motions you file. I mean, you know, obvious political overtones to the to the case Yes. And and you guys file um, a motion to address that. Tell us a little about that motion. So, you know, there are two ways to go about this. There's what's called vindictive prosecution and selective prosecution. Both um, law- defense lawyers know very, very tough to overcome um, the law on, on both those angles. But we filed a motion on vindictive and selective saying, you know, where um, were there other lawyers who are running for DA in this in this kind of county under these kind of circumstances, African-American, um, and saying that this was clearly the reason for this was to get him out of the race um, and that it was vindictive in terms of these were old, old tax counts, unfortunately not beyond the statute of limitation, and went way back when he was a defense lawyer practicing and had never been addressed and he had never been given a fair opportunity to our notice on any of them. So that was a very involved um, motion, 99 pages, as you see. 
and it was very involved in terms of the litigation. What was interesting, though, about the case is that when Jason was first indicted, he was in front of a judge named Judge Feldman. Judge Feldman was actually the oldest federal judge on the bench at the time. Oh, wow. Um, so it was really interesting. Judge And Judge Feldman, you know, all of these judges down in New Orleans have these very interesting backgrounds anyway. But Judge Feldman is from was originally from St. Louis and had um, come to New Orleans, was very good friends with Scalia um, and had pictures of he and him, himself with Scalia in, the, in, in his office and Thomas. Judge Thomas. And in fact, he had converted from Judaism to Catholicism um, as a result of both of them. So he was a very interesting guy, very hard nosed, knew Jason, though, and had known Jason because Jason had practiced in federal court and had an excellent reputation as a defense lawyer. And um, so it was really interesting in terms of the players that were involved. Um, but Judge Feldman was hard-nosed and denied the motion um, after all the litigation that took place and um, did not appear to be biased toward Jason in any way. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, during the pendency of the case, um, he passed away and we were um, a, a new judge was substituted after we the case had been continued and um, because of an interlock that was taken during the course of the case. So, so about the, you know, the pretrial motion about, you know, the selective prosecution, because as you say, they're, they're so hard to win. And in fact, in a lot of times, you know, you file these motions and the judge not, says, not only can you, are you going to lose the motion, but you can't raise this argument at trial. You can't even talk about um, these circumstances at trial. It, were you allowed to talk, you know, have that theme of, 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 uh, political prosecution at trial, or, or were you precluded from doing that? It's so interesting. It was so frustrating, David, because I remember thinking to myself, I can lose a motion to suppress, but I can still argue to the jury that this was not fairly done, that procedure and protocol wasn't followed. So why can't I do that on a selective or vindictive prosecution, right? So uh, we were very frustrated. I will tell you, despite the fact that we could not argue it and we did not, the jurors got it. They felt like there was total disparity going on. And and let me be very clear, this jury was not an African-American jury. This jury was picked from outside parishes surrounding New Orleans. Um, and many of them were very conservative. You know, we did a deep dive on the jurors like you're supposed to do. And um, but they knew it. They could tell that there was something wrong and that he had been picked on because of who he was. You know, it's it's really interesting you say that um, because just to use the trial that I just had with with Andrew Gillum, we we were we filed a similar motion. It was denied. And the judge also said we cannot mention politics. We cannot mention selective prosecution. We can't make those arguments. But we felt the jury got it, too. Um, and, and we tried to do it in different ways. I, I would ask the agent uh, until the judge yelled at me. But I would say you would agree with me that it would be wrong to pick someone out for race or politics. And of course, the agent would would agree with me on that. But I, you know, right. and the judge said, I see what you're doing. You're, you're trying to reverse it. Um, right. uh, uh, but but it's it's crazy that we can't argue these things to to a jury. 
it was it was remarkable to me and so and we had other ways of um unindicted co-conspirators who had not been charged and we had a tax preparer in this case who had held himself out as a um actual certified public accountant and who was not and who had pled who was white and had gotten these breaks and other defendants and then who had gotten breaks so there was clearly a disparity there and that was helpful to us but i will tell you this is when jury selection is so key and as an african-american lawyer in this country look i look around this country and i look at the politicians who are targeted in this country and for the most part, I think, wait a minute, why is it all the black DAs? Why it is Marilyn Mosby? And you see all the, you know, your client and you see that. And so, you know, as someone of color, you have a sense that this is wrong. So how do I prove that? Right. So during the course of this case, Judge Afric, who is the judge who was substituted in, and again, a very hard nose. Reagan appointee, been on the bench for 25 years, and was not known as any easy friend, known as a very fair judge, but not someone who would be overly friendly to the defense. And I remember him telling me um, in the pretrial conferences, and we had, um, Judge Feldman had allowed us to do a juror questionnaire. And he said to me, I just want to be clear, Ms. Wayne, I know you do a lot of jury selection and judges have given you even in federal court, but in my court, courtroom that doesn't happen there's no attorney conducted voir dire so i never get you know upset by when a judge says i can't do something right because i'm like you david i'm like okay but i'll figure out some way here to make this right, right, right. and we had this questionnaire and i believe in you know this concept of deselecting jurors so i'm looking for jurors who have an attitude that is against my theme or theory of the case. That's all I care about. Not people who are friendly to me, but people who will never be open-minded to whatever the theory of the so case. So how do you do it? Because I, I'm fascinated by this and, and uh, you know, you're the expert on jury selection. So how do you figure that out? <laughs> so in this case, I had really two questions. One was, most people in this country believe politicians are corrupt in some way. That's just true. I don't care if you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're an independent. Most of us have that sense, unfortunately, about politicians. So that was question number one. Mm -hmm. Question number two was, particularly if they are Black. Mm -hmm. And the responses to that question were it was not surprising to me as a black woman lawyer in this country, but very surprising to the white lawyers involved in this case. They were not surprising to Jason either. Okay. But they were really ugly responses. And so those and were on your juror questionnaires? Those, those on question our juror questionnaires. Oh, I can imagine some of these responses. I mean, it was it was remarkable. And as a result of that, Judge African, and, and I give him a lot of credit for this. He was, I think, embarrassed that people from his state would make the kind of responses and that it would clearly be unfair to Jason not to flush that out. So as a result, we ended up having two days of attorney-conducted one-on-one voir dire. Wow. Every wow. Unbelievable. So so the, the first judge tells you, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. And not only are you, you end up able to do it, you get two full days of it. 
Yeah, this the, this judge, Judge Afric, is the one who said that. Yes. Oh, I, th- I thought it was the first no, judge who said. That. No, no, um, and the first judge probably would have said the same thing. Yeah, but, they all do. So, um, but the but the question was a fair. Those were fair questions. So you know, I wasn't asking questions like you know, do you like um, the nuggets or the heat? <laughs> Because we know that's going to be a question. I like the nuggets, by the way. (laughs) We we may need to end this interview uh, now. (laughs) I'm from Colorado. Come Uh, on. I know, but let's go heat. So tell me. (laughs) So, you know, it was really drilling down on questions. And people, you know, lawyers always say to me, but I'm so, I don't want to ask that negative question, but it's the negative question that that's the response I need to know, right? I need to know how you really feel. And um, the, the the to me, the bad answers are good answers for me. I can then intelligently use those preemptories. So do, do you have a jury consultant with you or are you doing this all on your own? I, I, I don't use a jury consultant because I am grateful that I seem to have good instincts. I've actually helped other people and done a lot of mock jurors. Now, that's not to say there aren't great people like Denise DeLaRue. I think Denise has incredible instincts, and I've used Denise on a lot of cases. Um, you know, the, Joanne Coonan, I mean, there are good people out there, but, you know, I'm that kind of lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you do it. And, and it's funny because you know, I, I was a public defender and and then I was a lawyer for many years with clients who could not afford um, a, a jury consultant. Now, a lot of clients that I have want to spend the money. They, they you know, sure. they're looking, let's do a mock jury. Let's have a jury consultant. Um, and, and there are benefits. I mean, when we do a mock jury, it's, it's wonderful, but I'm used to asking the secretaries, you know, what do you think about this guy? Um, <laughs> that's, you know, and, and using uh, the old PD ways, but uh, uh, lots of clients now want to spend that money and and uh, have consultants around. And I understand that you, you when you are under such an awful um, power of the government making an accusation against you, if you have the money, you want to put everything you can to save your life. That makes total sense to me. We have figured out ways, David. I mean, one of the things that to me was um, a silver lining about COVID is that I actually, Jason didn't have money, by the way, he's a, you know, he's a public official, so he didn't have money. And yeah. people are like, how much money did you make on that case? And I'm like, really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Things you do in your life because you believe in them, frankly. And so that was that kind of case. Um, and, um, you know, there wasn't great money, but we did mock jurors by Zoom. And we use the concept of we put out feelers in a geographic area that was very similar to New Orleans. We did it on Craigslist. We did it on a number of other things. And we can we did it on Zoom. And it was actually pretty good. And we got some good sense of who we didn't want on that jury. Um, it was it was it was it was valuable to a certain extent. It really was Re- really, really interesting. Um when when you when you do these cases with local lawyers um you know let's just use the example of picking a jury do you guys pick by you know sort of consensus do they defer to you i mean how do you do those things it's i always find it hard like doing with a team of people um you know edward bennett williams always said you know we can have a team everybody gets one vote and then i get all the votes plus one um so so how do you do it I agree with you. I have been so lucky. So again, um, Billy Gibbons was my co-counsel on the mm-hmm. case. 
couldn't have done this without Billy. Billy is a fantastic lawyer in New Orleans. Mike Magner and Avery Party represented the co-defendant, Nicole Burdett. And um, because I've done cases with them, they totally trusted me. And, you know, I did a case with Mike Magner, um, a doctor we represented in New Orleans. And I'll never forget it because Mike, you know, was an ex-AUSA. And um, when we we were at halftime on the case, and I'll never forget being in the kitchen of the courtroom in a small space behind Chambers, telling him we are not putting on a case we are not putting on the client and that was a hard one i i, I will never forget it but mike trusted me and so it you have to have a sense of real trust with your colleagues and i've been very lucky you know and again i have a proven track record mm-hmm. um so it's not like i'm a new lawyer and you're trusting me <laughs> but um he trusted me and i was right if I hadn't been, trust me, those are the days where you're like, what if I'm, and we, so same thing happened with Jason. We, you know, everybody, we came into that case saying, if you're ever going to put anyone on the stand, the expectation would be a politician, someone who has been elected, someone who is eloquent and persuasive, and someone who had been, is a lawyer. You're going to put that person on the stand, right? To tell their side of the story. Absolutely. And and so, so how do you make that decision? You're jumping ahead of me, but but this is I, I want to talk about this. So so you know, obviously everybody's expecting him to testify. He's the district attorney. Um, how do you not call him? That's right. And um I I'll never forget Billy looking at me and I was like, they have not proven this case. We have taken apart the government and dismantled their agents, their main witness. They they, they made some real missteps um, evidentiary wise and they didn't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I am a huge proponent of the reasonable doubt instruction. I'm a big advocate of it. The Fifth Circuit has one of the best, um, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, And I said, that is, there's just no way that a juror would not hesitate on this case. So, so do you, do you have him prepared and then you guys make that decision or did you go into it thinking he would not testify? No, we went into it thinking he would testify. He would he testify. Was he, he was prepared. Um, we had obviously spent all the time that you do. Um, you know, the great thing about when we were, when I was a public defender, we didn't have the computers that you could practice, you know. And so now we can do the practicing, right? You just hit your Mac and go, okay, let's practice this. Um and we were practiced. But with Jason, again, this is a guy, if you go on Instagram or anything and you watch his speeches, you know, he's one of these eloquent speakers that you go, I believe you. <laughs> I mean, you're raising your fist up and you're going, I'm with you, brother. And um, he's that way. But I just knew that um, there were speeches that he had given, um, things that I could see getting taken out of context. You know, I don't care how innocent you are, you can be made to look suspicious, right? We know that. So, so it, it's so true. And, and you know, something I think that has gone away, people have gone away from reasonable doubt, have gone away from clients not testifying. There's a, there's a, a trend towards clients testifying. There's a trend towards lawyers saying, 
not focusing on the reasonable doubt instruction. So, you know, those are sort of first principles we learn as as defenders. And and uh, it, it is weird to see them sort of going away. It it is, and it's it's troubling to me. So I gave. Um, I, th- I was in San Diego at the Federal Defender Seminar a few weeks ago, and one of the things that I said to my said to the audience, not to myself, is that I have a lot of respect for this ever evolving holistic approach, where we are more in tune with our clients. That you have social workers, and you're getting the background and this narrative about your client. But don't forget why you became a lawyer. Don't forget it's about drilling down on the legal issues and challenging the government and constitutional principles. I mean, that's I mean, do I love the underdog and what I do? Absolutely. But that's why I became a lawyer. And I think we are losing sight of some of that. And it's great putting your client up. But I have to tell you. And all the case trials I've had, David, and you probably feel the same. I've had over 200 jury trials in my career. I've probably put a client up four or five times in my lifetime. Wow. And I've won a lot of those cases. Yeah, yeah. Client. And I was practicing in a conservative jurisdiction. I mean, Colorado, Denver is progressive, but you know, you get up in the mountains, you go up to the Eastern Plains. It's no different than going to Tallahassee. Okay. Right. Um, Right. So, so, so how do you deal with that in closing? Then your client doesn't testify. Uh, obviously, you know, jurors and other people are expecting that a politician, especially a district attorney, would. What? How do you? What do you say in closing? What's your standard um, spiel? I don't have one. You know that. I don't have a standard spiel at all. I don't believe in that. But I will. I. I will tell you. I have. I. I write out things. I'm very much the OCD lawyer <laughs> yeah, writing it all out. But I never ever use a piece of paper. I never. Oftentimes, you know, things change and it's fluid in trial, and you have to be able to respond. So, um, the AUSA, um, when she got up and finished her hour long closing, I had a PowerPoint. Ready, and I had the financial documents and all the highlights, but I stood up and it was completely, you know, off the cuff, I'll say, is that I looked at the jurors and I took a moment and I said, I feel like she wasn't even in the same courtroom. <laughs> it's great. Like she didn't wasn't even listening to the same witnesses you heard from. And so I started from that point. And the judge said to me, he said, when you did that, I was like, right on. That's what I would say. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. You have to be flexible. You have to be willing to sort of react. Um, you know, in the Tallahassee trial, my partner Margot um gave this wonderful opening and you know, she had worked on the PowerPoint, like you say, worked on, you know, written everything out. And the government got up and, and started by saying, this is a really complicated case and there's not going to be a smoking gun. And, you know, Margot started her opening by saying, there's not a smoking gun because he's innocent. And this is a simple case. You know, she sort of threw away the notes and responded. And it's so you have to be willing to do that. Um, Absolutely. And it sounds like Margot is exactly the kind of lawyer I love because opening, and I know people argue about this, but the social science is pretty clear. 80% of jurors make up their mind after opening. Then they marshal the evidence to fit the side that they've taken. We all do that in in life. So oh, that makes sense to me. So opening is so important. We all love closing because it's, you know, you get up there, it's the end of the, you know, 
trial and you can do all the things that, you know, the flair and everything else, but it's really opening. And so when I hear someone being a bit on that, you know, argumentative side, which whenever a judge stops me and says, you're arguing, I'm like, well, I am arguing (laughs) mission here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree with you. You win the case in opening and she won the case in opening. There's no no, no question about it. Um, and, and I think opening is is a million times harder than closing too, right? Because it's so stressful. It's the first time you're getting up. The jury doesn't know you yet. Um, you don't know how the evidence is going to come out. So there's all these strategic uh, decisions about how far you're going to go, what you're going to say. So I, I think opening is really, really hard um and and the most important part of the trial it totally is i'm so i'm just so glad we're talking about it and look you know people say that it's hard and this is the law professor part of me is that i'm always like the undisputed facts so take those undisputed facts that nothing can change i don't care if a witness flips or not during trial you have it from prior testimony or whatever and that's what that's the architecture of your opening statement and if you go in there you'll feel so much stronger with those undisputed facts, you know, and being armed with them. Yeah, things change. I mean, that's what we love. I mean, don't you love when the government's witness suddenly says something you're like, well, that's brand new. (laughs) Yeah, no, they go south. I I love it. Um, Did they know about that before? (laughs) Right. But but what about also, you know, and to get back to your teaching, you know, the themes, trilogies, those kinds of things that we learn about. What was your what was your theme in the case? I knew you were going to ask me that. It's so funny because um, it was it was a good faith reliance case. I mean, he relied on um, the advice given to him by his accountant, um, and and that the target, the focus of the case was this accountant not only had held himself out as a CPA and someone who was reliable to Jason but had to lots of other people who had never been indicted. And guess what? They were white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. is hard to make a good faith defense, Lisa, when the guy you're relying on is testifying against you. I mean, it, it, you know, that's not an easy defense. I know. And he, and our client was a lawyer. So we had to be careful that there wasn't an extra burden of, boy, you're a lawyer. Don't you have another level of like making sure whoever you're using is is a CPA or whatever it is? It was, But in this case, it was interesting. So the co-defendant in the case, Nicole Burdett, who was actually um, found guilty on d- separate counts on a other in, an, another indictment, but they were merged together for the purpose of trial. Um, it was a family friends had recommended this guy. So there had been reliance as a result of that. Nicole was a lawyer in Jason's office who um, you know, had been a friend of his for a long, long time, had worked his campaign. So there was no reason to question that. And the other hard part about this, um, and we know this, David, is he, Jason ran a very small boutique firm. He was busy. And really, he's the kind of lawyer who never paid attention to details. And he was in and out of that office, relying on his office manager, the associates in the office, and going to court, being a city council person. And so that was something we were able to bring out that there was just no reason for him to hide anything because he was relying on others. Um, And that's that's the sole practitioner's work world in so many ways it, it is um but but that said it's always really tricky when the guy you're relying on is pointing the finger at you so so 
when you're got when you're going after this guy, what's the what's the attack that he's lying to save his skin? What what is the attack on on the snitch? Well, you know, it was really interesting because it was a buildup. So you know, it's always hard on cross. Do I come in and I'm slamming that um, that person immediately, and I have this tone of going after, or do I try to garner some trust so that I can lead them to the place I need them to go? I like the second tactic a little better because I just think we lose credibility when we're on the attack all the time. It's it's hard. It's I mean, hard. I remember as a young lawyer, right? I was on the attack all the time because that's just who we were. So with this, you know, with this particular witness, it was, you know, you did these things. You held yourself out as a CPA. You did that because you'd been practicing a long time. You hadn't thought about it. You didn't know when you were putting on your letterhead and holding yourself that it might be, you know, all of these things, you know, really building up how he had the trust of the community and so many others that there wouldn't be any reason for Jason not to have trusted him. Um, and there was also, Jason actually never met with the guy. It was everybody else who was meeting with it. It was literally Jason signing the dotted line. How do you learn to do this? So one of the things that I like talking about on the podcast, because you know so many lawyers listen and, and, and you know we all want to become better lawyers. How do you how do you learn how to cross a guy like this? How do you learn how to give an opening or a closing? I mean, you're you're obviously running NACDL now, so it may be a good time to pitch uh, becoming involved. But but even becoming involved, I mean, you know, how do you how do you get better? Uh, you know, David, I think it's. Um trials and experience. Um, I was a public defender for 13 years and one of the best public defender systems in the country in Colorado. I mean, we were well known for the training that went on there. Sunwoop was one of my mentors. I mean, Larry Posner taught me how to cross. He, he was in the Colorado system. That's how you learn to cross was the chapter method. So I didn't know a different way. Trilogies and all of that were just part of my DNA. So I'm really grateful. And in many ways, I'm lucky. And it took to who I am. So, you know, I can't help but thank my mom because my mother is a per people person and she has great instincts, right? So I had a mom who, you know, you can go to Whole Foods with Juanita, that's my mother's name, and she can tell you a hundred things about the clerk that she learned in 20 minutes. It's like my dad, uh, you know, same, same, same kind of person, but we, we all need a, we all need a mom like Lisa's mom. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned, you meant, I have to tell the story. So you mentioned... Sunwolf, and, and not many people probably know who she is. She's this wonderful woman who, who I heard lecture when I was a young public defender, and I was taken with her and and her techniques. And I had learned one thing from her that I was dying to use, and I finally used it in in Andrew Gillum's trial. She said, you know, if if you're looking to embolden jurors, um, you know, they're going to elect a four person, and and you know, one thing you can tell them is. Don't let the four person eat up all the time in the jury. Turn to each juror and say, you know, you may want to address the issue of why there are no fingerprints in this case. Then turn to the next juror. You may want to address why there's no DNA in the case and, and go through all the reasonable doubts and tell each one to be the four person on that. And so in this case, um, you know, we knew we had some jurors uh, going into deliberations. And so one of the things we did in closing is I said, I, I use that Sunwolf technique, like don't let your voice go away in that juror. Make sure you stand up and get heard. And we looked sort of at the jurors that we thought were supporting us when we said that. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking of Sunwolf that whole time. 
you know what? I'm going to have her listen to the podcast because she's going to love that. I mean, she changed. She, she not changed. She had an impact on so many lawyers in this country. And if you get her, it is incredible. So, you know, the the juror bill of rights um, deselection is really from Sunwolf. OK, it's out of the Colorado method that comes from Sunwolf. And and so she's just brilliant. And the, the last thing I heard her lecturing in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office a few years ago, and she's still doing this, is that she said, you know, we used to care about um, jurors' responses about, you know, how do you feel about this and how do you do this and all of that feeling thing. But really what matters, and this is so great, is the conduct of the juror. So if I say I believe in DUI laws, I believe in those. Tell me what's your conduct that's consistent with that belief. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen someone on the road who's, um, you know, weaving and called the police? Have you ever called an Uber for somebody at a party because you knew they were under the influence? It's the conduct more than that saying the belief. Think about doesn't that give you goosebumps? She, she's she's something else. <laughs> she's no, really, really good, really good. Maybe we yeah. should have her come on. Um, so, so let me ask you, Lisa, so you have this co-defendant and you've mentioned, you know, ultimately what happens. Are you guys working together at the trial? Are you, are you sort of teamed up or are you trying to separate yourself from her uh, during the trial? No, we were, it was definitely a mutual thing and it was very difficult. Um, I mean, Jason was the target. She was the collateral consequence. Yeah. And, and and it was so, you know, I, I was more of the one in there. But, you know, when you got someone like Mike Magner and Avery Party, no one's going to be quiet. Right. So Mike was in there on a lot of this stuff. And Avery was the 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 motions and the, she was just brilliant. I mean, I just couldn't have asked for a better team. But, you know, it was really hard when Nicole went down on the other indictment and it was very difficult. And so, so that sentencing is still pending. Let, let me ask you about that. So the jury goes out. How long is the jury out? It seemed like a hundred years. But <laughs> <laughs> it was, we were, we sat in the federal defender's office and Claude's office. Thank goodness for, you know, defenders are united everywhere. They let us use their offices as a war room. It's right there in the courthouse. And we, I think it was two days and, may have been i think it was two days worst part right i know isn't that funny how i completely repressed how much (laughs) it was and before we get to when they announced the verdict one of the things that that i was reading about the case is that you guys had to like use different entrances and exits because of what was going on and threats what what was going on with that so the second day of trial the fbi comes in and lets um, us know that there have been threats that they believe are, um, you know, honest to goodness threats um, from the right. Um, And I guess they can pick up some of these people, you know, who are on these threads, um, these white supremacist threads, and that they recommended that Jason wear a bulletproof vest. And so, um, you know, that throws more stress into a trial, particularly for someone who's accused. And so Jason had to wear a bulletproof vest. Um, I wasn't going to. Um, my vanity is too great that <laughs> it, that, that was not going to happen and add 10 pounds to me during trial. But he wore one and he had to go out through um, the judge's special entrance. And 
we went out, we would always avoid the press. The press, you know, was camped out, you know, the deal all day long, every day, just in case. I mean, the funny thing is when we didn't, when we, when I stood up and said, the defense will rest based upon the government's evidence, the press went, I mean, you would have thought the third world war had been declared. They ran (laughs) out and, you know, it was unbelievable. But so we used separate interests. So, you know, that hung over our heads and, um it was scary um my husband was not happy that i I was standing next to someone who might be a target all day long every day um but you know we have to not be afraid and i I mean i have to say defenders are courageous people for for the most part and you know we get threatened because we represent people who are you know the despicable in this country the despise nobody likes you and we're brave people david i think it's so true and you know lisa i talk about this all the time this is the one job where everybody's rooting against you the judge is rooting against you the prosecutors you know, the jurors come in thinking, uh, I'm an, I want to root for the government, the public, the press, everybody is rooting against the criminal defense lawyer. It's really hard. And, and uh, I don't think people realize what we what we go through sort of on a day to day basis. I know. Why do we do it? Right. I mean, (laughs) I mean, people say that and nothing's better, though. I mean, nothing's better than when you turn that, you know, that corner and they're all finally looking at you like, whoa, actually, she's the truth teller. Whoa, actually, she's on our side. Right. Um, And nothing's better. But, you know, I think of through my career, I've had some doozies of of, um, clients with some horrible allegations. And, you know, I remember being in the courtroom as a young lawyer at one point going, and the DA is standing there in state court, pointing their finger, just he did this and he did this. And, and I had to remember, okay, he's not talking about you. <laughs> but, You're but you going say, <laughs> right. you, say, you know, you say, why do we do this? I, I think part of all of us are a little sick um, to, to keep wanting to do this <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> No, I don't think we are. You know what? I think we are really incredibly gifted people who have taken a gift and decided to do right by it. I really do, David. And, you know, when you're people like us who come from historically racial and cultural backgrounds where our people endured, it's a natural thing for for us, right? Mm-hmm. This is a natural extension of where we should be. You know, when I look at my son who says, I don't want to have anything to do with what you <laughs> and my dad and my stepdad and my grandparent, I mean, I'm, I don't want to do that. And I go, wait a minute, this is like voting, honey. You, my, our people fought to get to the voting booth and you need to be here fighting. Now you can do it in a different way. You don't have to be a lawyer. I get it. Um, but yeah, I just, I have, I don't have a second of regret. No. And I, I remember, you know, I don't know how long I'll be able to be out of the courtroom, David, but I remember, you know, when I'm in trial looking in the in that mirror, even when we're getting beat up and someone's been sentenced to life, I mean, I've had those, and thinking to myself, but I'm doing the right thing. This is the best job ever. So, right? so true and so great. And so you come back, uh, you get word that the jury has a verdict, and, and I saw that the first verdict's 
that are red are your co-defendants. You you must have been absolutely dying when you hear the co-defendant guilty verdicts. It was such an interesting experience. So in this federal court, I've never had this, and I think they're all different, but there was a, you know, the judges elevated above us, for those who are listening who've never been in these federal courthouses. So the judges elevated way above us. Then there's another elevated where the court reporter and the clerk sat, and they have their computers. And the judge brought in a special microphone and would and handed the verdict forms to the clerk. She pulls up this mic like she's going to bust out in a Tina Turner song. And I'm saying that because yes. um, she has passed and and starts reading these verdicts. And we all are standing up. So I have Jason next to me and Billy is on the other side of Jason. Now you have someone who has been a defense lawyer, someone who is now a D.A., is now a defendant looking at his life being completely taken away from him, going to federal prison, losing his law license, everything, right, that he has worked for. He is shaking mm. like a leaf. Mm. And Jason's a big, strong, is a, a strong, in shape guy, right? I think to myself, if he goes down, he's taking me with him. So <laughs> I grab under the table to hold on. Wow. And Billy... I can't look at Billy, who I know is feeling the same way I am. And um, and they start reading Nicole's verdicts. And I'm like, oh, no. But the reading through the tax counts, and it's not guilty. So it's only her other counts. And she's not charged with the 8,300 counts. Everybody says to me, you're never going to win 8,300 counts. Nobody ever wins those. But we had some good defenses on the counts. It was just wrong what they did to him. It was just, it was wrong. And um, so when then they start going through, you know, you know the deal. You can't celebrate till the end, right? And there's like, I, I can't remember, 15 counts. So it was a long, it was a long, horrible at time. And um, once it was done, it was literally sitting down and breaking down. I bet. And, and okay. you know, you hear those those two word verdicts and it's like like not only a weight lifted off, it's it's the, the flood of emotions. It's it's for people who have not been through it. It's hard to describe. It is hard to s- describe. And this is what's wrong with us is even when you win. I don't know if you do this, David. I still when I'm, I think about the case for like a week later about things I should have done differently. I mean, oh. <laughs> oh, 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 you know, it's it's bizarre because we don't savor the wins like we should and, <laughs> and um, you know, even celebrate them like we should. That's part of the reason I'm trying to do this podcast, because I want to make sure that we talk about these things. Are Do, do you get a chance to celebrate uh, with your client that that night or? So we, so we did celebrate. We um, the, so a, a couple of things happened. So we went back to the federal defender's office. We didn't weren't going to talk to the press. And I had really, I, I I had put a kibosh on that. Mike talked to the press, but you know that's Mike, and he knew how to do that. I don't believe in it. I just I just don't like it. Even though I have worked at CNN and done all of that, I just don't. They're they're no friends of ours generally. That's the mm-hmm. that's the rule of thumb. Okay, they're not looking to help the defense. That's true. So um, I you know even though we had one, I was like, uh. so we're sitting in with the federal defenders, and um, you know I think. Claude, who's the federal defender down there, may have had like a bottle of bourbon. I don't drink hard liquor. And, you know, we were all drinking bourbon. I think I might have had a sip. I was looking for a beer. <laughs> and um, at one point, 
spot and another defender, and I can't remember her, but said to me, you really ought to go out and talk to the press. And I go, why? They said, because you know what? You're a black lawyer in a predominantly black city with a black DA who they elected. You need to go out and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that hit home with me. And that's why I went out and talked to the press. It was because of that. And they were right. I had friends who were in hotels, Lori Towns, actually, who's the um, executive director for um, NAPD, was in a hotel. She said when the verdict was read, all the black workers were around the television and were all cheering. Wow. What a great, what a great thing. So it was a significant thing for them in that city. And the fact that I I wasn't really cognizant of it until someone told me. And I'm glad I wasn't because that would have been a great weight on my shoulders, greater than everything else already. So that was, you know, that was wonderful. And then one of the restaurant owners opened up the restaurant. We had a big party and there were a lot of people that came and um, were very happy for him. Then I flew back to San Francisco to home to see my husband, who I hadn't seen in a few weeks. And I got COVID. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god what a great way to celebrate covid um but at least at least you got covid after a win i mean getting covid after a loss would have been the worst so right. so and, you know we were beat up i mean it takes a toll on us i mean it's an it's a big toll on our bodies so it made total sense to me that that was the first and only time i had gotten covid and i got i thought okay you know i'm letting down now here yeah, of course here. i get sick after every trial win or lose cuz you just let down and then you get sick right. Yeah. That yeah. That well, listen, I, I want to thank you for, for doing this. Um, it's so great to hear, you know, this story and, and thank you for all that you do for criminal defense lawyers and, and our bar, because we need more Lisa Waynes out there. Well, I think that's great. And I'm glad that you feel that way about me. And, you know, look, NACDL is trying to do a lot for us in terms of the teaching that you talk about, all the, of that, David. And, you know, and one of the big things is trial penalty that we talk about. So when you talk about, you know, how are lawyers going to get better and openings and all of that, we are not in a place where we are challenging the government enough because we're so concerned with the hammer, the consequences that if individuals exercise their constitutional right to challenge the government, you are going to be punished for that if you go down, more so than if you took a plea. And so then you there's a disappearance of trials. So we have to really stand behind this issue and really change it up, David. This is the gift we're going to give younger lawyers is we've got to change that path. I'm so grateful that Lisa Wayne took the time to discuss the Jason Williams trial with us. It's so inspiring to hear those sorts of stories. And, you know, brings us back to the first principles of being a criminal defense lawyer, trying cases, all the techniques that we have. And I think it was good just to remember some of the importance of beyond a reasonable doubt, opening statements, things like that. And it's one of the reasons we get CLE credit for these um, podcasts. If you're in Florida, we just applied for it and received it. So at the end of the season, you'll be getting um, CLE credits for these episodes. So I want to thank Lisa Wayne for participating. She's wonderful. And again, please get the word out for these episodes. Thanks so much. And we'll be back in two weeks for For the Defense. Thanks.